It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 62, Israel Ask for a King After the events at Mizpah, Samuel goes on to be a most exceptional prophet, priest, and in essence, Israel's last judge. Samuel grows old, and as Israel looks for their next judge, they point out Samuel's sons are corrupt and incapable of rule. It was at this moment Israel asked for a king. Doesn't sound like a horrible request, but it was for the wrong reasons and out of God's timing. I've asked my good friend, Jason Ross, to cover this territory for this episode. And this has worked out great since Samuel is so dynamic to have three of us cover him, Janelle, myself, and Jason, to give different perspectives. In this episode, Jason's going to give more background on Samuel's traveling ministry some details on his sons, and Israel's request for a king. So if you're a long-time listener, you may remember Jason Ross from the Jacob episodes back near the beginning. Jason is an author of one book with another on the way, and he's a principal at Providence Academy in Rogers, Arkansas, and a close friend. So without further intro, here we go. I want to thank Brett for the opportunity to join you in this podcast. He's doing a great job in bringing a message to kings. Speaking of kings, our narrative today will mark the end of the period of the judges as Israel receives her first king. We'll be discussing the significant historical events that are chronicled from 1 Samuel 7.15 through the final verse of chapter 8, which is verse 22. The books of Samuel, which originally comprised one volume in the Hebrew Bible, received Samuel's name, by the way, because he's simply the dominant personality of the early years covered in 1 Samuel. He couldn't have written the complete history contained in the books that were given his name. For one, everything after chapter 24 of 1 Samuel occurred after his death. At least the remaining chapters of the first book of Samuel and all of 2 Samuel, if not the entirety of both books, were written and compiled after the division of the kingdom, but before the exile. We know that's true due to several references to Judah and Israel as separate regions and due to there being no mention of the fall of Samaria in 722 B.C. 1 Samuel 10.25 mentions a book that Samuel wrote. So many scholars believe that he either wrote the portion of 1 Samuel that delineates his own life, 
including the passage we're considering in this podcast, or he related much of it to someone else who recorded it. You know, in the early chapters of 1 Samuel, of which you are aware if you uh, have been listening to other podcasts, we've seen the miraculous birth of Samuel to Hannah, who had been barren. We've realized the corruption at Shiloh that led to Israel's defeat to the Philistines and the loss of the most cherished, cherished uh, possession in Israel, the Ark of the Covenant. We've noted the deaths of Eli and his sons and the departure of the glory of the Lord from the tabernacle. The prophet Samuel is currently, as we're beginning this podcast, serving as judge over Israel, and he has ushered in revival in Israel. The ark has returned, and the Philistines have been defeated. We're told in chapter 7, verses 16 and 17, that Samuel traveled on a circuit between Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and Ramah, the four sanctuary towns. So he made kind of a loop annually. Ramah, by the way, was his home and the place he built an altar to the Lord. Samuel was approximately 55 to 65 years old when the events of chapter 8 start. Samuel, of course, had succeeded Eli in the position of judge many years earlier. Unfortunately, we see the results of Samuel's parenting yielding mirror images of his predecessor. Not only were Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, corrupt, but so were Samuel's sons, Joel and Abijah, who were judging in Beersheba, the southernmost part of the kingdom of Israel. There is at least one apparent difference. There's no mention that Joel and Abijah were abusing their positions through sexual gratification like Eli's sons, but they are said to have accepted bribes, abusing their authority for personal financial gain. One interesting thing to note is that when Samuel is later rebuking the people at Saul's coronation, which is recorded in chapter 12, he touts his own blameless record where bribery is concerned, saying, From whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? And yet Joel and Abijah had been doing that very thing, accepting bribes for favorable judgments in cases that came before them. This offers rich lessons to those of us who are parents or in other positions of leadership and authority. Just because you embrace and live out some character trait as a leader, it doesn't automatically mean that your follower believes and embodies the same characteristic. Also, be careful who you pattern your parenting after. I recommend obtaining resources, if you're a parent, from sources like Focus on the Family or Family Life Ministries, others who would offer sound biblical counsel. Also, we must love our children enough to offer reasonable and fitting instruction and discipline. We're setting them up to live what Proverbs shows is the life of a fool when we fail to do so. 
Be prayerful and careful how you use a position of authority. It's an opportunity to serve others, not to advance your own agenda or personal desires. If you think about who it was that our Lord Jesus blasted by calling them whitewashed tombstones and brood of vipers or offspring of snakes, it was the religious or spiritual leaders of the day. Now why is that? Because they were abusing their positions of authority. They were making disciples of themselves, not followers of God or of his Christ. They couldn't say what Jesus had said, I have come to serve, not to be served. Authority is to be used to please the Lord by becoming the servant of all. You know, finally, the other takeaway that I want to emphasize from this situation is when we abuse a position of authority, it gives those who are counting on us more reason to look for different leadership. It can discourage and disenfranchise those following us by painting an inaccurate view of God and His leadership. This fact is evidenced by what 1 Samuel 8 verses 3 through 5 tells us. It says, But his, that is Samuel's sons, did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Let's take a closer look at this statement from the elders of Israel. But first, we'll hear Samuel's reaction and God's instruction to Samuel. Verses 6 through 9 records, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. You know, I want to pause here to say, Oh, that we would be able to say that every time something displeased us, we took time to pray about it. When I've done that in the past, it has made a significant difference in the situation. You know, this is a sign of Samuel's dependence upon God. Also, listen to what the Lord said to Samuel when he took time to pray. He said, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. At first glance, it would seem that a king was never meant to reign in Israel. But that's not entirely accurate. It was understood that a king would be raised up at some point. Genesis 49.10 speaks of the scepter, or a monarch's rod, coming through the line of Judah. And what is particularly powerful is the fact that Deuteronomy 17 outlines principles that the eventual king of Israel should follow. And in that context, it 
prophesized that the people would say exactly what they did, which is, we want a king like all the other nations around us. That was the real issue. The people were, re were rejecting God's leadership once again because they just wanted to be like everyone else. They were more concerned about their reputations than they were inspired by being God's special people. And when that becomes true in an individual believer's life or in the life of a group of believers, the course is about to go awry with bad consequences, which is a major theme in the books of Samuel. It happens in the hearts of Christians, too. When a believer is unwilling to pray for someone they encounter who needs comfort and God's intervention due to how they appear or may appear to someone else who's there, you know, the same issue is in effect. When a believer spends the money in their possession on the same things the world craves, whether it's ungodly recreations or undue number of material goods, uh, whatever it may be, because he or she just can't stand to miss out, the same issue is in effect. In his account, The Outline of History, H.G. Wells stated that Israel at this time was turning toward the, quote, newer fashion in human affairs by desiring a king, a powerful monarch to rule over them. You know, that proclivity in our flesh toward the newer fashion in whatever realm can be a trap and a distraction from a greater good. Instead, we should look forward to prime opportunities to be identified with our Heavenly Father and His priorities for us. And we need to be leery of having greater concern what another human being might think over what our Lord will think about our words or actions. The early Christian church often embodied a passion to be associated with Christ regardless of the outcomes. Acts 5.41 bears it out as well as possibly any passage. You know, after being beaten at the order of the Sanhedrin for proclaiming Christ publicly, Peter and some of the other apostles departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. So the primary issue in 1 Samuel is the motive of the people. They are rejecting God himself. The Lord tells Samuel while Samuel is in prayer. And Jehovah tells Samuel to warn the people of the future consequences. Verses 10 through 18 say that Samuel provided an itemized list of the sacrifices they are going to have to endure when he came back to speak to the elders. It says, And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his own horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vintage, 
and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Wow. Under the inspiration of God's anointing, Samuel prophesies that the children of Israel are about to put themselves under a rule that will produce eerily similar results to their ancestors' former conditions in Egypt. They are about to choose to be under the lordship of man instead of the lordship of God. Now understand, this is less about theocracy versus monarchy as a form of government than it's about the condition of the people's hearts. Again, they're rejecting the Lord in order to be like everybody else they admire. They also seem interested in a warrior king that will protect them from potential outside invasion. So maybe they want to fit in or maybe they want to dominate their neighbors. Regardless of the motivation, they want to be like them. In the New Testament, we are called to come out from among them and to be separate. We are referred to as strangers, pilgrims, and a unique people who are called out of darkness in order to walk in the light. We are a city set on a hill and the salt of the earth. We cannot reject that identity for a lesser calling. Yet here was the answer of the elders of Israel following Samuel's warning. No, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Again, they wanted a warrior king that they could cheer on. They wanted a hero to fight their battles. And Samuel repeated what they had told him back to the Lord in prayer. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed their voice, or in other words, listen to them, and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. So it was settled. Samuel would be the last judge over Israel. Israel would have its first king and would not like the eventual results. Well, I hope you've appreciated this podcast as we've taken a look at 1 Samuel 7.15 through chapter 8. And as we've considered that the ultimate rule and reign on earth should be the rule and reign of the Lord in our hearts. And remember, identification with God through Christ is the penultimate reputation for a man or woman to possess. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we meet Israel's first official king, King Saul. 
and we get a real in-depth look into the ministry of Samuel. Feel free to visit the Facebook page and leave a comment or question, or if you want to chat, email me at messagetokings at gmail.com.